0: While Jeff takes the month of December off, the Fries are stepping in to put our particular spin on things. Since this episode is airing a few days before December 7th, 2022, which is the 81st anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, I thought it might be interesting to drag Gordon in for a chat about the award-winning 1943 documentary, December 7th the attack on Pearl Harbor.
1: They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multi-pass. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: The, uh, multi-pass. Yeah. It's multipass. You're stupid mimes. Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can and sing. up front as you can hear we are still getting over this crazy cold that's going around in the fall slash winter of 2022 so apologies for our chesty tone with that disclaimer out of the way here's a little background before i grab gordon in on this thing Now, the goal of this film was to show that, despite the obviously devastating attack in December of 1941, America in 42 was in no way handicapped by this attack, and that our Navy was more than recovered and doing just fine, thank you. Greg Toland, a skilled cinematographer who had already won an Oscar for his work on Wuthering Heights, was given this project as his first assignment after joining John Ford's US Navy Field Photo Unit. It was a cherry job for Toland, who had long wanted to direct. In a 2014 article for the National Archives, Audrey Amidon writes, quote, The criteria for successful completion of Toland's assignment were simple. The film should be turned around quickly and should make the public feel that the naval fleet was recovered and prepared for battle," unquote. When they said quick turnaround, they meant it. Today, turnaround for a major feature from development to release is typically two years, give or take. Back then, it was more like a year. Many projects were cranked out in less than six months. For additional perspective, The film industry at the time was producing, aside from other projects, three to four films a week with some war-related content. A week. People weren't just going to the pictures for escapism, they were looking for engagement. There was no internet. Most folks didn't have TVs yet. And even if they'd had, the first really televised war was decades away in Southeast Asia newsreels, documentaries, and even narrative films were vital. People would go multiple times in a week. The film that Toland eventually delivered took nearly a year to complete, which seriously undermined any immediacy it may have had, and, as Amadon writes, quote, can only be described as bananas, unquote. She describes Tolan's 85-minute documentary as including, quote, long sequences of Uncle Sam, played by new director Walter Houston, fresh from his first film, The Maltese Falcon, being admonished by his conscience for vacationing too much and not taking seriously the hyphenated, quote-unquote, threat of Japanese Americans. The overt racism far surpasses even the propaganda films that were shown only to the troops and intended to instill scorn for the enemy that would be our actual enemy, the Japanese nationals that the US military was fighting in the Pacific." In this full-length version of the film, Japanese Americans are also painted as an evil lurking threat with wild abandon. Even the children are sleeper spies among us. Needless to say, the liaison between Hollywood and the War Department, Lowell Mellet, was appalled. There was no way this film could be shown to the public. As stated above, the film was supposed to be churned out quickly as gung-ho propaganda for the war effort. Instead, after a whole year of production, it arrived as a screed demonizing a chunk of the home front population. Of course, the paranoid Fed was already shipping Japanese Americans off to internment camps, but part of that strategy was to split these hyphenated Americans up and distribute them to towns around the country to prevent them from, oh, I don't know, forming large communities or cabals or something. Ginning up racism to this degree might cause small towns to reject these uprooted families. John Ford was brought in to fix the mess and ended up cutting 50 minutes, toning down the overt paranoia to a considerable degree and cutting all but a few seconds of that Uncle Sam stuff. At 35 minutes, it was still a little too long to play as a short before feature films in public movie houses, so it ended up shown to the military and munition workers upon its release in early 43. Although it won an Oscar for Best Documentary Short in 1944, it would be Toland's only directorial effort. Still, his legendary cinematography work has withstood the test of time. I'll put a link to both versions of the film in the show notes. I'll also add a link to a brilliant lecture at the National Archives YouTube channel by Mark Harris, who wrote a book about these wartime directors called Five Came Back, A Story of Hollywood and the Second World War. I recommend it highly to anybody interested in this film, wartime documentaries in general, film history, or all of the above. Now that's the Cliff Notes version of the why and how of this film, So now it's time to bring in Gordon for some more historical context. Okay, so we just got done watching the massively edited shorter version of Greg Toland's December 7th, The Attack on Pearl Harbor from 1943, and I talked a little bit about the historical background and now we're just going to kind of riff on that and uh, talk about a little bit of the little more of the historical context for that and what it was like in 1941 Mm -hmm. and uh, neither of us were there we're not that old old however uh gordon you know some people who remember it actually quite well
1: well the first one is a good friend of ours keith His father grew up in Hawaii and he and his dad used to go camping on weekends. And And they they lived on Oahu? On Oahu. And one Sunday morning he was out, he was like 10 years old. He was out gathering some firewood for their breakfast campfire. And here comes this plane real low and fires off a burst of machine gun fire, probably checking his machine guns. Right near him, so he of course hits the deck and runs, then goes running back. Said, dad, dad, dad! Anyway, so he's probably the first person shot at. Uh, in you know in Hawaii. So these are know? probably the
0: zeros that were coming in north over the mountains.
1: Right. Yeah, they're coming in from the from the north.
0: Wow. Yeah, and there's right a saddle, and they were camped right in this saddle. One thing I noticed in this film was there was a lot of hype. Excuse me, a lot of hyperbolic language. Boy, oh boy, and. Um, as I mentioned a little bit ago, the full length version of this was really racist, really anti-Japanese, not just, not cultural nationalist, national Japanese, but Jap- Japanese Amer- American citizens who just happened yeah. to be of Japanese extraction. And this was one reason why the, the, uh, the film board liaison went, ah, we can't show this. This is wrong. And, uh, you know, just words like backstabbing and treachery and mm-hmm. and the perfidy of this and this other perfidy over there and it's like well it's it's not tr- it's not treachery unless it's your own people acting against right. you and how can how can it be tr- it it was an attack now right. of course i'll just be upfront about my opinion about this whole thing and i'm of the opinion that our government our National government knew that stuff was going on. Oh, yeah, there's lots and lots of yeah. evidence to suggest that. This was not a surprise for them. They were ready for it. And, you know, I, I, years ago, I read a, a really nice biography on Claire Booth Luce, who was a, a, one of the last few real um, journalists. And she had, prior to this, she had spent almost a year on this junket going around the Pacific Rim, just doing culture pieces and interviewing and looking. She, and she was from a well to do family. They were connected. So she had a lot of doors opened for her in different places. And she got to talk with the movers and the shakers. And. Well, she was married to Henry Luce, right? at the time i guess because then he I was don't... the editor owner of life magazine ah well she she That's had her what? finger on the pulse and at some point she was like i'm listening to all this chitter chatter and what's going on in japan is about ready to pounce this is not good they're coming for us and so she hot-footed it back to the states and went straight to washington and got a meeting with the president and all these people and said hey this is what's going on and I just want you to know, I've just come from here, here, and here, and talked to this person and this person, and this is the scuttlebutt. This was, was what's going on. And they were like, go away. That's, okay. Whatever. Don't, don't talk about that.
1: Well, we were pushing Japan hard. Uh, we had sanctions against them, for, against, uh, them on uh, scrap metal and um. then oil. And the Japanese actually had been reaching out to try to negotiate with us, which we absolutely refused. Now, what the Japanese were doing in China was inexcusable. Yeah. But, but Roosevelt needed to get us into that war, and that was how we were going to get it, because we couldn't convince the Germans to declare war on us otherwise, even though we were actually in a shooting war with the Germans in the North Atlantic already. But one of the asides, a funny story that goes with the, the radio broadcast about it, California time. My dad grew up in California and he was 21 years old, been married for a year and a half almost. And he was over at his parents' house and he's carrying and a pie across the kitchen for their Sunday dinner, supper. And they've or, got the radio on. And they got the radio on. And he hears, you know, Pearl Harbor has been bombed by the Japanese. Da, 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 da. And he said to himself, well, maybe he said it out loud, I'm going to be drafted. And he dropped the pie. <laughs> and he was right. He got drafted, you know, 21 years old. That's, you know, even yep. though he was married and working in a defense plant, he still got drafted.
0: Yeah, this, um, as we were sitting and watching this too, I noticed you kept saying, they used that later in Victory at Sea, you know, just all this, especially reenactment footage yes. and stuff that they put together for this and, and some of the actual news, news footage of, of the aftermath of the attack of course, was recycled later and used in the amazingly cool award-winning series Victory at Sea, yes. which was released after the war, Right. but um, I remember watching episodes of Victory at Sea in high school. My history teacher would show them mm-hmm. sometimes when we were talk- talking about this era.
1: Victory at Sea was obviously, a, you know, it's a propaganda piece about how great the United States was in World War II, and it's not far off. This one, however, this December 7th, oh my word, the propaganda. And this and is
0: the toned down version. Right, and it's, it's just pretty imagine. heavy-handed.
1: Uh, one of the lessons of World War One was don't let your propaganda force you into a corner, which is what the British especially did. They let their propaganda, their anti-German propaganda, put, paint them into a corner where they didn't feel that they could negotiate, even though... In 1916, the Germans offered a negotiated settlement, what do they call that, uh, status quo antebellum, mm-hmm. and the, the British couldn't do it because, oh my God, our government will fail, will fall, yeah. can't do it, and they couldn't, of course, these guys are power mad Tyrants and they can't let that happen.
0: Well, maybe that uh, liaison Millet, that guy, maybe he saw some of that in the offing. If he didn't do something, I a think quick so. Fast. I yeah. think it was
1: fairly well recognized amongst the propagandists that you can't be too heavy-handed, or again, you paint yourself into a corner. Yeah.
0: Um. You also, we have some other stories from you mm-hmm. from that time too, and what happened. With the Japanese internment here in the United States, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a blotch on our escutcheon Oh yeah. and uh, things that happened. It wasn't, there were some terrible things that happened. A lot of families lost everything. They were sent to the camps and their neighbors just took all their stuff Mm -hmm. and took their, Mm -hmm. you know, absorbed their property. And that was the end of it. But there are also some good stories of, of neighbors who rallied around their Japanese American neighbors.
1: Right. So the bad stuff first. One, I had a, a neighbor lived down the street from me when my kids were little, and his daughter and my daughter were good friends. A guy named Bob Yamaguchi, a wonderful guy. And one time we were talking about stuff, talking about some local history, and I said, "Well, you were born here, right?" And he said, "No, I was born in Arkansas." I said,
0: Arkansas?
1: What the heck are we doing in Arkansas? I said, uh, "Internment camp." Oh, uh, so right. he was
0: born in one of the camps. Right.
1: They were from central california the family was but they got sent off to arkansas
0: well that's that whole government because there were camps in california yeah yeah but that was that whole thing where the government was trying to split everybody up and shuffle them around so they couldn't congregate or form communities and it was just like
1: And another one though that's that's not great is my my great aunt was actually the principal of the japanese school in the town of florin california and i mean my cousins have said, "Oh, yeah." When I talk to Japanese people, and they find out that my grandmother was was the principal there, they, "Oh, she was wonderful. She was so great. She would help, you know, the 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 actual immigrants, the Japanese immigrants, figure out, you know, income tax. I mean, all kinds of stuff." But anyway, so my dad knew all about the a lot of the you know Japanese American stuff that was going on in the area of Florin, and. Uh, he said that there was this big parking lot near the railroad station full of cars of people who'd been interned. They drove their cars there, parked them in the parking lot, and all the keys got stuck on a on a wall, you know, marked, but the car they went through, and the building burned down. Oh no! I mean, yeah, it's one thing you just go get the car relocked, but Still. it was just a little pain and patootie. Yeah. But the real heartwarming story that we heard. Was, um, we were working in the town of Medellin Falls, Washington, which is this tiny little burg way up in the northeast corner of Washington. North it's, of Spokane. It's way up there. Um, and it's basically in Canada. But there was a hardware store that had been owned by a Japanese couple who had passed away from some malady or another. Uh, and their teenage boys, who were like 15 and 16, were running the store. Well, the Wh- sheriff. When was this? This is 1941. Oh. And in early 42, here comes the sheriff of Ponderay County to take them off to the internment camps, and the local said, "No, no, they're our boys. They're good boys. They're doing fine here. We'll keep an eye on them. Don't worry about it. But they've got a job here, and they're doing a great job, and they're good boys. We'll 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 take care of them." And so they never left. In fact, they were still there running a hardware store when we were working in in. That area in uh, what 1997
0: something like that,
1: someone 50 years later, they were still at it, yeah. and it was really. I remember chatted with, chatting with the gentleman, great guys, and uh, yeah, but the the locals said, <laughs> no, no, you're
0: not taking these kids. There are kids, yeah, there are boys. Thanks, but no, um, we'll
1: keep an eye on them. There won't we know they won't get into trouble, we'll keep an eye on them, so and just tell them to the share a flat out, No, you're not doing this.
0: I'm going to put links to things in the show notes. I'm going to put a link to the long unedited version of this if you've got the time yeah, and you're you got curious. The guts for it. Yeah. And then a link to the short one, the 35-minute one, which is the one we watched. It's very interesting. It's a it was a different time and even though they toned down the racism against the Japanese, it's still there to to a modern sensibility and there's some hokey stuff where they try to kind of balance it out and it's just just like oh that was obviously staged. I'll put also a link to the National Archives article that I quoted from earlier. So
1: one last thing uh, a friend of ours um, his dad was actually in the 442nd regimental combat team the Nisei in World War II. They were Japanese young men recruited out of the camps. And they sent him off to Europe to fight, it's mostly in Italy. Uh, and it was the most highly decorated unit in the entire U.S. Army because these guys had something to prove. And there's lots of really interesting stories that we got from our friend Francis about that. Oh, yeah. So one of these days when we're on that kind of tack, we'll yeah. talk about those. There's also an interesting movie, since we we're talking about the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, called Gopher Broke. And that was their motto, go for broke. Uh, and it's got Van Johnson as this lieutenant in command of these Nisei. And he's of course very, you know, suspicious of what, the, oh my God, I got sent here with these guys. And of course they end up proving themselves against the Germans. And the best line in the movie is, you know, they've got some German officer, senior officer captured and said, what, these are Japanese. And Van Johnson said, yeah, they surrendered to us. Didn't Hitler tell ya? well they surrendered to us and then they joined and they've joined us didn't Hitler tell you anyway it was funny I liked it
0: es laut vom und da. der Räder ist da. Der
1: Räder ist da. Kommen Sie da
0: runter! We have a Facebook page, and it's called Naturally Celluloid Days. Please join us there to comment and discuss the films we cover. We're also on Twitter at celluloid underscore days. We're always looking for film suggestions, and the more strange and unusual, the better. Our email address is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com, days of Celluloid being all one word feel free to email us for any reason, even if it's just to say hi to Jeff. He likes that, really. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you get this podcast. It will help others find the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week for a brief look at not one, but three of the best Christmas films you've probably never seen.
1: They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The
0: cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Multipass. Yeah. Uh, multipass. You know this multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can and sing at the same time.